Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, give us hearing hearts that we may hear your Holy Spirit and be led like children holding their parents' hands in unknown paths. Deliver us from this deceit that we know certainly what our path should be and where you should take us. We pray for Pastor Thomas, Tommy as he comes to shepherd us before your word, that we may be open to hearing your spirit again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to heaven. Uh, as I was gone, I know that we continued um, the series that we are in currently called Draw Near, a study in the book of Hebrews. And I want to remind you that the reason why we entitled the series Draw Near is because six different times in the book of Hebrews, uh, we see that phrase used, draw near to God. The idea behind that is that we have the ability in the covenant that we now live in because of the work of Jesus Christ to draw near to him. The truth of the matter is, the book of Hebrews is continually contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. But in both covenants, the idea was so that God's people have access to God. And so there were the different means by which those in the Old Testament had the opportunity to have an access to God. An access that was imperfect, an access that was, that was muted, an access that created distance and space between them and their Heavenly Father. Because of the work of Jesus Christ and the life in which we now can live in this covenant, we have the ability 
to draw near. One of the real examples of this is what we saw as it, as it relates to coming into the presence of God. Because of the work of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we have in us now, we can step into the presence of God whenever. As we begin to allow ourselves to, to, to enter into a relationship with God, to pursue a relationship with God, we can step into the holiest of holy places because of the Holy Spirit in us. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that kind of access. Once a year, the Holy of Holies was available only to the high priest. And only if he was without sin, if his sin had been forgiven, was he able to enter into that place. And so as we go through Hebrews, what we're seeing is continually and constantly this, this compare and contrast between the relationship that the people of God had as they're trying to draw near to God and the relationship we have now in the church because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this morning's text is no different. We can see a comparison from the old to what we have now in the new. The author of Hebrews writes and says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We see here him, the author of Hebrews, saying to us, here's what it was like for the Israelites in the Old Covenant. And I'm warning you to not be in that same place. Every time I read a passage in the Word of God about the Israelites and the wandering, I'm always reminded about something that I think is kind of common to the human experience. Or at least I can say I know it's really common to my human experience. Do you ever notice how better you feel about yourself when you can look down on other people. Um, and I'm not talking about like blatant two people's faces, real life kind of looking down on others. I'm talking about the, the general kind of disconnected from relationship looking down on others that we do. You know, like, like looking down on Bears fans, as an example. It always feels good to do that, right? Or... Or maybe like when you're driving down the street and you see all these idiots who don't seem to know how to actually drive. Or maybe when you think about who people are voting for or what people are thinking, how often you go, what is wrong with these people? How can they think that? Part of what that is is that's us looking at it saying, we're other, right? I'm not like them. I don't think like them. I would never vote like them. I don't drive like them. And I sure as heck don't support a team like that. Because I'm better. I'm better than them. For me growing up in my Christian faith, those people who always made me feel quite superior in my Christian walk were the Moses-led Israelites in the desert. And I read this stuff, I can't help but think, I mean, who are these idiots? 
you look at the story. You look at the experiences they had. You look at what was taking place with their God and how God visited them. And then you look at how they responded and you've got to think, what is, there's a screw loose, right? These are a bunch of people who were in slavery. They were getting beaten on a regular basis. They were being starved. They were, they were in slavery. And God visits them in a very real way. He sends the prophet Moses, and Moses comes, and he stands in the gap to, to, to earn their freedom through the hand and the power of God in a very real way. We all know the stories, right? The, the plagues that get sent, the numerous plagues that get sent over and over and over again, it, whether, whether it is the turning the Nile red or whether it is blotting out the sun or whether it's the, the flies coming or the frogs coming or culminating in God. God sending the angel of death to kill the firstborn to earn, to win their freedom. And so God does this incredible thing in their lives in incredible ways, manifesting incredible power on their behalf. And so they go from Egypt rejoicing. You guys have seen the, movie, the Ten Commandments movie, right? movie, right? Like when they're leaving Egypt and how they're all celebrating how great it is and how wonderful it is. And then they come to the Red Sea, and like, it, like what seems like 12 minutes later, they're grumbling against God, and they want Moses to die. Like they just saw God do these incredible things over time, setting them free. And literally, like 12 minutes later, they're like, you've led us out here to die. So God shows up again, and shows up again in this powerful, incredible way. He parts the sea. He, they walk on dry land, walls of water on either side. And as they get across, they're able to turn around and watch all of their enemies destroyed by God on their behalf in this incredible way. And they rejoice. It's recorded in there, the, the, the song of Miriam, and they dance and they rejoice in who God is. And then, again, what seems like 12 minutes later, they get hungry. Oh, God, why have you let us out here, Moses? You brought us out here to die. And they grumble against God. And so, God answers them with, with magical food. Manna, every morning, showing up from the hand of God. And they rejoice. Until they get bored with manna. And they complain against God again. This is their story. This is their history. And I can't help but read this and think, what idiots. God shows up on your behalf. He does incredible things. And every single time you complain. And not just complain. Like, like I want to read to you something about this because it shows the profound nature of their complaining. Numbers chapter 11 this is what's recorded. Now the rabble that was among them had a, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we, might, that, we might, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now, 
Our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. I mean seriously. Do you remember what you were set free from? Like, to make the declaration that we got to eat fish for free, for free, you were slaves. They beat you. And you got to eat fish for free? Oh, but we had cucumbers and, and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now all we have is this magic food that shows up from the hand of God every morning. Talk about idiots, right? I mean, who, having been set free from oppression and slavery, having been led miraculously into new life, having been met in the wilderness by the provision of God, would ever allow their cravings to turn their hearts and minds back to circumstances that enslaved them in the past for something as inconsequential as onions and garlic. Who would ever, ever do that? I used to think they were idiots. I used to feel superior when thinking of them. I used to. Until I lived out my faith a little more and realized that I can be just like them. That I can be enticed back to the seductive offerings of this world. That having experienced the freedom from sin Christ gave me, having experienced his touch in my life providing for me over and over and over again, meeting me in my own personal wilderness, feeding my soul, I still can be tempted to complain about his provision and seek fulfillment in the land of slavery. Am I the only one who can identify with the Israelites? The imagery of the Israelites that Hebrews uses to call us to take inventory of our own lives, I think, is really poignant, and I think it becomes very arresting when you really take it to heart. The, the temptation and faithlessness that manifests in the hearts of the Israelites is real for us, I think, in our wanderings as the church. And the great encouragement of the book of Hebrews gives us, is that it gives us the resources to avoid the fate that befell all those who failed to enter the promised land. We have the ability, according to Hebrews, to persevere, to not find ourselves turned back to slavery, but to become everything that it is that God has for us, to experience all that he has for us. And one of the very first places that we find the encouragement, we find the instruction that helps us to get there is a very simple phrase. It's take care. I want you to look at the verse and read it, and then I want you to understand it better because there's depth in that little phrase that's used here that we don't see on the surface. Take care, brothers, he writes, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. He says, take care 
lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart. Just like the one, just like the ones in the desert, just like the Israelites who wander in the wilderness. Take care that that's not you. The word here, the words here, take care, are, are far too fat, passive, I think, to, to convey the instruction that the author of Hebrews needs us to understand or that he's trying to get us to understand. He's saying, take care, take heed, pay attention. The Amplified Bible, I think, adds um, some urgency that is needed when it writes, Therefore, beware, brethren, take care, lest there be any, any one of you a wicked, unbelieving heart that re- refuses to cleave to, to trust in, to rely on him. I like how the Amplified says it because at least it, it sends up this warning. It says, it says, listen guys, beware of this. This is, a, this is a threat. This is a challenge. Beware of it. The Greek word translated take care is blepo. And it means to perceive with your eyes attentively and constantly. The idea here is that we are constantly observing with a view to avoid or constantly looking at all that we're doing in a sense of continuing to be wary. It's about us being attentive. It's about us being aware. It's about us taking care, actively making sure that we are where we're supposed to be. Take care, brothers, that you don't have an unbelieving heart that causes you to not trust in Christ as your total provision and your total hope. One of the great threats to the Christian walk, a threat that, that leads us back to dependency on the leeks and garlic of a sinful world, is the lack of attentiveness as it relates to our faith. Christianity is not the rare practice that requires no attention. What I mean by that is for some reason, people believe that growing in faith, being conformed to Christ, living an ongoing Christian life requires little or no effort, little or no attention. Now, does that make sense? As you've lived your life, as you've looked around and you've engaged in so many other things in life, does that make any sense to you? That somehow you step into this place of Christian faith and it'll go swimmingly if you put no attention to it. Think about anything else. Think about any other, any other, any other endeavor in your life. If you're somebody who, who decided, I want to get in great shape, and I'm going to, I want to build my muscles, and I want to get strong, and so I'm going to go to the gym on a regular basis, and you did this for, for a week and, and two weeks and six months and a year, and all of a sudden you woke up one day and you realized, look at how I look. Did you then stop? Did you stop lifting weights? Did you stop working out? No. You paid attention, right? You gave continued an effort. Because what happens if you stop putting an effort? The muscles go away. This isn't unlike any other area of our lives in which if we stop putting in the time, if we stop, think about it. Listen, if you trained for a marathon and then you ran the marathon, and after running the marathon you went, now I can always run marathons. 
and you stop training, you stop running, and two years down the road you're like, well, I ran a marathon in the past. I can do that. And you just got out there to run. You wouldn't get very far, would you? Every area of our life needs us to be attentive, needs us to be aware, needs us to be engaged. It doesn't matter whether it's being a student. It doesn't matter if it's in your career. It doesn't matter if it's in relationships. In every one of these areas, if you fail to actively engage, you will eventually begin to fail in your practice. Fortunately, too many Christians do not see the correlation. Part of the problem is that people believe Christianity is simply a confession. I was baptized as a baby. I'm a Christian. I was confirmed as a kid. I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer as an adult. I'm a Christian. But the rebirth of Christianity calls and compels us to continually practice and live out our faith so that we might move progressively into the image of Christ. Philippians says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is talking here and he's saying, listen guys, here's all the things that you need to contemplate. Here's all the things you need to think upon. Here's all the act activity that you need to be doing so that you can make your, your salvation sure. You can make it strong. He literally says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And, and, and that declaration implies the reverse, doesn't it? He says, if you practice these things, then the God of peace will be with you. But what happens if you don't practice these things? Is there any wonder that so many of us who claim to be Christians do not have peace in our lives? Mostly it's because most of us think that our Christianity is simply a declaration. And it's not something that we need to be attentive to, to be aware of, to work on. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy with this. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, reading of Scripture, exhortation, teaching, spiritual gifts. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you might progress. If you don't practice these things, you'll regress. This is what Paul tells to Timothy. We are far too casual with our faith. And so often we stumble because of it. 
Hear the words of Spurgeon in his commentary on this passage and take them to heart. Take heed, brethren. If ever there was a matter that needed all your thought, all your prudence, and all your care, it is the matter of your soul's salvation. If you do trifle with anything, let it be your wealth or, or with your health, but certainly not with your eternal interests. The question posed before us as we read this passage is this, how vigilant in faith are you? If you're struggling in your faith, it is my guess it is because you are flippant about your faith. Stay faithful. Watch, watch your speech. Watch your conduct. Take inventory of your love, of your faith, of your purity. Be devoted to God's word, to exhortation and teaching. Seek the spiritual gifts and practice them, immersing yourself in your faith. Take heed. Now there's another powerful exhortation that's expressed here in Hebrews that will help us to stay in that place. And it's this. Exhort one another. He starts, he says, I want you to take heed of your faith. Guard your faith. Be aware of your faith. Engage in your faith. And then he says, exhort one another. And as you hear this, I want you to see how closely related it is to calling us, to driving us, to, to leading us away from the sinful uh, um, temptations of our poor, former slaver, life of slavery. But exhort one another, he says, Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Man, do I love this declaration. Do I love this passage? If you know me at all, you know that this is right in my wheelhouse as a pastor. Exhort one another Every day, as long as it is called today, for we share in Christ. I am not sure that in all of Scripture you can find a more definitive call. That you can find a, a, a more definitive declaration that is more, that it, that is more um, clear and sound. I, I mean, he says, exhort one another. When does he say to exhort one another? When does he say to exhort one another? He says, exhort one another every day as long as what? As long as today is called today. Let me ask you a question. Is today today? Is there ever a day where today is not today? Today is never yesterday, is it? Today is never tomorrow. So the Hebrews is trying to drive this, this point home so much that he doesn't just say, encourage one another every day. He drives it home even further. He says, encourage everyone, one another every day as long as today is called today. He's telling us that key to guarding against being drawn back into sinfulness is that we in community every single day are encouraging and exhorting one another. 
But before I expound on that, I want you to see why. Why do, why do we exhort one another every single day? Why does he say it's important for us to, every day that today is called today, exhort one another? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. First, look at that phrase. The deceitfulness of sin. It's such an awesome description that we should all be able to embrace. You understand here that the author of Hebrews is bringing you back to the story of the Israelites. That, you're, that, that, you're, that your heart isn't hardened by the lie that slavery was better. This is what they were believing, right? Like, like where we are right now is so much worse than where we were over there when we were in slavery, where we got leeks and onions. It was a lie, right? It wasn't true. This is the same thing he's saying to us. Do not be deceived by the lie of sin. That sin is better. That sin will provide what you are looking for. That it will give you what you're seeking. Whether it's in the approval of man or whether it's in, whether it's in, whether it's in sexual promiscuity or whether it's in greed or whether, whatever it might be or is in power, that that allure will somehow give you what you want. It's a lie. The hope of sin is a lie. And when we set our minds on that as our hope, we stop relying on God. We stop relying on Christ as our provider. Where we get our life, where we get our purpose, where we get our hope, where we get our peace, where we get our joy, where we get our sense of value and love. And what does he say is the antidote? Brothers and sisters, exhort one another all day Every day that it is today. The, the, the fellowship of the body is vital to your Christian walk. Don't, don't tell me you don't need the church. Don't tell me you don't need Christian community. Don't tell me you don't need brothers and sisters in Christ in your life. And you in theirs. It is in exhorting one another that we counter the lies of sin. And, and the truth is, anybody who has been involved in community the way that we're being encouraged here to do that, anybody who's had relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's a community group or whether it's as you gather together in, in prayer or as you come together in the church and you talk, you realize, you see it, you've experienced the power of exhortation in community to counter the lies of sin. To have somebody look at you and go, listen, man, that's not going to help you and you know that. Don't you remember how it brought destruction to you? That community, that relationship is what will allow you to counter the lies that sin tells you. The word exhort here is the Greek word uh, parakaleo. And it means to, to come alongside, to, to hold up, to encourage. But I want you to hear the totality of the definition that is found in this instruction of parakaleo. Because this is our call for one another. To call to one side. To speak to in a way of exhortation. To speak to and admonish. To beg and entreat and beseech. To console and encourage and to comfort. To strengthen 
by consolation. This is our call as brothers and sisters in Christ. That as we come alongside one another and we lift one another up and we strengthen one another, we beseech you, we, we implore you to turn your back on the deceitfulness of that sin. We beg you because they're lying to you and destruction will come if you don't turn your back. We're not playing here. Church isn't something you simply attend. We are brothers and sisters in Christ given to each other to help one another to walk in Christ. And if you don't believe me, look, look at the last statement because it's beautiful how he brings it together. For we have come to share in Christ. This is not a, a singular, siloed, selfish experience. But we have been bought with that blood of Christ to bring us to the shared experience of Jesus Christ. You cannot isolate yourself and believe that you will walk healthy. You cannot isolate yourself and believe that your faith in Christ will not struggle. And you cannot isolate yourself and believe that you will not be deceived by the promises of sin. I want to close with this. Eighty years ago, evangelicals in Germany formed what became known as the Confessing Church. They opposed the German Christian church movement sponsored by the Nazis between 1933 and 1945. As Nazi dominance increased, the Confessing Church was forced underground. In 1935, the Confessing Church formed a preacher seminary near Zingst on the Baltic Sea, which soon moved to Finkenwald. The principal and main teacher of the 25 students was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a 29-year-old pastor and university professor from Berlin. Bonhoeffer led the students in a, in a disciplined life together that included uh, daily prayers, meditation, worship, study, recreation, and work. All the seminarians knew they lived on the edge of eternity. In September of 1937, the seminary was closed by the Nazi police. And in November, the seminarians were put under arrest. Bonhoeffer, in September of 1938, put in book form the lessons of the Finkenwald entitled Life Together. In it, he writes about the insights of how to be a Christian in community when life is being lived on the brink. In March 1943, Bonhoeffer participated in attempted suicide of Adolf Hitler. He was arrested April 5th, and two years later, on April 9th, Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Gestapo in the Flossenburg concentration camp at the age of 39. Here is an excerpt from Life Together. If somebody asks a Christian, where is your salvation, your righteousness, he can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures him of salvation and righteousness. He is as alert as possible to this word because he daily hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He daily desires the redeeming word. 
But God has put this word in the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's is sure. We share in Christ. If you want to walk in faith in a way in which you are held, hold firm, in which you experience the joy unspeakable, where you have a peace that passes all understanding, a hope that is eternal, a love from which you will never be separated, an identity that roots you beyond what this world has for you. There is a way to live in that place. It requires us to take heed, to be alert, to live out and practice that which we've been called to. And it requires us to live in a community of faith, one with another, where we are challenging one another, exhorting one another, lifting up one another, standing with one another, beseeching one another, begging one another to stay firm in the pathway that God has for you and to never look back over your shoulder at the slavery that was behind. It's not easy being a Christian. The wandering that we find ourselves in in this wilderness will test us. It will challenge our faith. But thanks be to God, he has provided a pathway where we can learn and grow, take heed and practice, and stand with one another because he's given us a shared faith.